we're about to hear something that over three billion people have never heard before. The words of God. We're from Luke chapter 1, verse 39. It's on page 856 if you'd like to use the hardback Bible in front of you in the pew rack. Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 44. Hear the word of the Lord. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. This is God's word. You may have a seat. As we come to the season of Advent every year, uh, our hearts and imaginations are drawn back to the story of the birth of Jesus over and over again. Most of us know the story. We know the major players. We know Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, the wise men, and even the infamous innkeeper. And those who are even more familiar know of Zechariah and Elizabeth and Simeon and a random prophetess named Anna. These folks don't show up in your family nativity scenes, but their words and witness are vitally important if we're going to truly feel the impact of the incarnation of the Son of God through the birth of Jesus Christ. So over the next uh, few Christmases, we're going to be looking closely together at the songs of Luke's chapter 1 and 2. In these songs, Mary, Zechariah, the angels, and Simeon, they're all rich with redemptive historical significance. And we tend to just kind of read right over these as we read the narrative. And we don't want to do that. We don't want to miss what the Lord would have us glean from these important moments in history. We want to slow down and kind of put ourselves in first century shoes and experience the wonder that God would look on our humble estate and bless us with his long-awaited presence. And so that's the plan. We'll begin this year with the song of Mary known as the Magnificat, and that's just the, the first word of the song in Latin. This song is very reminiscent of the song of Hannah uh, from 1 Samuel chapter 2. Um, it's similar in its language and its themes. Its major themes are God's mercy to the humble and poor and God's judgment on the rich and proud. I think we'll find it very applicable and familiar after spending many months in the book of James. So what I want to do today is look at verses 39 through 44, the preceding verses of the Magnificat, and, and set this song in its proper context. In the weeks to follow, uh, the other pastors will unpack the text of the song itself. So here we go. If you're taking notes, my title is Grace for the Humble, um, and we'll be looking at three major points in this passage. The humility of Mary, 
verses 39 through 40. The humility of Elizabeth, verses 41 through 43. The humility of Christ, verses 43 through 44. So the humility of Mary, of Elizabeth, and Christ. The text begins, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. So let me start with a little of the backstory. Back at the beginning of the chapter, at the beginning of the book of Luke, an angel comes and informs Zechariah that his barren wife, Elizabeth, is going to give birth in her old age to a son. And this son is foretold to be a great prophet and the forerunner of the Messiah. And we know him now as John the Baptist. Then around verse 26, the angel Gabriel tells Mary that she is going to conceive and give birth to not just any son, but to the Son of God, even though she is a virgin. It's immediately after this visitation and the message from the angel that today's passage comes. That's what is meant by in those days. So in those days, meaning in the days following the visitation of the angel. And the first thing we need to see here is the humility of Mary. We see a great example of this humility back in verses 28 and 29. The angel comes to her and greets her, saying, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying. So when the, the angel calls her, O favored one, she's like, Me? You talking to me? Like, she, that was the last expected thing that she expected to hear from an angel, that she would be favored by God. Much like Noah, who found favor in the eyes of God for no reason in and of himself, but simply because God desired to show him favor, Mary finds herself unexpectedly in this gracious position before God and the recipient of an incredible promise, an incredible promise that honestly is hard to believe. And here's where you need to listen up. God knew it was hard to believe. God knew it was hard to believe. Like sometimes we think that either God doesn't know that we struggle to believe or that he just doesn't care. And if this is you, maybe this be your first bit of good news this morning. And it is this. When the Lord makes incredible promises to you, he knows that they are hard to believe and he has not left you without help. Like he knows we're weak. He knows we're feeble. And he has not left us without help. Have you ever wondered why it's Elizabeth in this story? Like John the Baptist could have been born of any Jewish woman and still fulfill his role in, in the redemption plan. So why did God choose Elizabeth? I think he chose her for Mary so that Mary could go visit her. See, Elizabeth was Mary's relative. And here's the cool thing. Elizabeth's pregnancy served as a sign for Mary. Elizabeth's pregnancy served as a sign for Mary. When the angel told Mary that she was going to give birth to a son, Mary asked a very legitimate question. She said, how will this be since I'm a virgin? So obviously, Mary knew where babies came from. And there was one big missing piece to her having a baby. The Greek literally says she had not known a man. 
the angel explains that this will be a supernatural pregnancy in which she will conceive, though still a virgin, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 36, it says, And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. In verse 37, For nothing will be impossible for God. Do you see it there? The Lord said to prove to you, Mary, that nothing is impossible for me. Your relative has conceived in her old age. She who was once called barren is now pregnant. And she's six months along, which means it's going to be pretty obvious that she's pregnant and that this is true. So Elizabeth's pregnancy is a sign from God to support Mary's weak faith. And this just shows us the nature of God and his kindness. He doesn't have to give us signs. He doesn't owe us any help. All he needs to do is speak, and we should believe him because he is God, and he is always faithful to his promises. Yet he condescends. He knows we're weak. He knows we're burdened with indwelling sin. So he goes a step farther in mercy. He gives us signs. He gives us helps. And we see other promise-confirming signs in Scripture. One is the rainbow in Genesis chapter 9. Right after the flood, God places a rainbow in the sky so that every time we see that rainbow, we are reminded that God will not forget his promise. In Genesis chapter 17, Abraham receives the sign of circumcision to confirm the promise that he would have offspring to fill the earth. And it was not a coincidence that this sign was on his reproductive organ so that every time he looked down, he would be reminded of God's great promise that he would have offspring after him. And today God has given us signs that confirm his word to us. We call these things the ordinary means of grace. They are scripture, the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, prayer, and the fellowship of the church. These are the signs that God has given us to confirm his promises to us and to strengthen our weak faith. Let's take the Lord's Supper, for example. Christ has promised us that if we abide in him, that if we come to him In faith as true food and true drink, we will have eternal life, and he will nourish us and sustain us forever. And he has given us the signs of bread and wine, food, a meal. He says, just as sure as you receive this true bread and true wine, you receive me by faith. My body, my blood, my life for yours. So be strengthened, be nourished. I'm with you. See, it's spiritual pride that neglects God-given helps. But humility seeks help. Like sometimes we think we've got this. Like it's, it's, it's belittling of God if we say we need help. But is it belittling to a parent when a child asks them for help? It's not. It's honoring to the parent. So don't act like you've got it all together, that you don't need help. You cannot live the Christian life on your own You need help. So make use of the helps God has graciously given you. So let's learn from the example of Mary how we are to make use of the helps God has given us. One, make use with urgency. 
It says, Mary arose and went with haste. So don't waste any time. Go immediately. When your faith is weak, run to the word. When your faith is weak, bow immediately in prayer. When your faith is weak, arise right away. Seek help at the Lord's table and in the fellowship of his people. And make use with determination. It may be difficult, as it was for Mary. She went into the hill country to visit Elizabeth. Travel in the hill country was difficult and even dangerous for a young woman in this time. Yet she knew the grace of God awaited her in Hebron. So she was determined to be blessed by the visitation. So don't let anything stop you. Don't make excuses. I'm thankful you're all here this morning. We we had a good excuse not to be here this morning. We didn't want to get wet. (laughs) But you're here, and God is pleased. And I know it can be difficult in our flesh to do this. It can be difficult to read the Bible or attend church regularly. But you haven't found, haven't you found that when there's times when you, you press through that difficulty and you begin reading that afterwards you're, you're glad you did? There are times when I really don't want to meet for a community group. Like I'm tired. We got to clean up the debris from the explosion in our home, known as children. And Clint. Maybe I didn't prepare the lesson as I should have. And I've held my phone in my hand and been one text message away from canceling so many times. Yet every single time, I'm blessed by the fellowship of my dear friends and our discussion of the word together. And then after everyone leaves, Kayla and I look at each other and say, I'm glad we didn't cancel tonight. It it was good. It was worth it. So God wants to help you. God wants to help you. So trust him and make use of the helps he has already provided with urgency and determination because humility seeks help. Next, may we learn from the humility of Elizabeth. In verse 41, the baby leaps in her womb, and we'll come back to that part later. But then it says, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry. This phrase was filled with the Holy Spirit. It's reminiscent of Old Testament words of prophecy. Anytime you see this phrase in Scripture followed by some sort of speech, what is being emphasized is the divine origin of the words. In other words, Elizabeth's blessing of Mary is not merely the words of a happy relative. They were prophetic words of blessing from the Lord through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So when greeted by Mary, Elizabeth blesses her with a blessing from God. And we can learn from Elizabeth this. Humility defers honor. This is our first thing we can take away from this. Humility defers honor. As the elder relative, Elizabeth was owed the honor in her culture. On top of that, she has been the recipient of a great blessing with a miraculous pregnancy. Yet Elizabeth defers honor to Mary. Without hesitation, she blesses Mary. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Humility doesn't hold on to honor, even if it's rightfully owed. Humility defers honor. Romans 12.10 says, Love one another with a brotherly affection. 
outdo one another in showing honor. So if there's anything we should be competing about, it's showing honor to one another. So don't wait. Don't wait to be honored. Don't sit around like, no one has honored me here. You go honor someone else. The next lesson in Elizabeth's example really speaks to me and I think to uh, my generation, and that is this. Humility rejoices in others' greater blessings. Humility rejoices in others' greater blessings. Today we think that justice requires God to bless everyone equally. But that standard is not found in Scripture. Rather, we see in places like Romans 12 that God gives varying gifts and varying amounts to whomever he sees fit and however he sees fit. And to one people, he judges without warning for their sins. To others, such as the Israelites, he sends prophets to warn over and over, showing his patience. God is free to give grace as he wishes. That's what makes it grace. It is by definition not owed. The potter has the right to make pots for whatever purposes he needs them for. The pot has no right to question the intentions of the potter. And discontentment and covetousness are rampant in our society today. And unfortunately, in the church as well. If you're filled with the Holy Spirit and your focus is on God and his glory, you will be satisfied and his grace will be sufficient for you. But if your focus is on yourself and what you think you deserve, you will never be satisfied and you will envy everyone who has anything that you don't. Elizabeth could have easily been covetous here. I mean, she has probably wanted a child her entire life, struggling many years of infertility. And here comes her little cousin, young and with child, and not just any child, but the Son of God, the Messiah. Elizabeth could have been bitter. She could have asked, why her and not me? I mean, my husband is a priest, and we have been faithful, blameless even, our entire lives. And she's just a peasant girl, not even married. How is she going to raise a child? But that isn't how Elizabeth responded. Being filled with the Holy Spirit, she recognized God's right to glorify himself however he sees fit, and she rejoiced. She rejoiced in Mary's greater blessing. She didn't just not covet Mary's blessing. She rejoiced in it. She counted it a privilege to know Mary and to witness God's grace in her life, saying, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? See, by Elizabeth not being envious and being content, she was able to be blessed by Mary's blessing. They were able to share in the grace of God together. But if she would have been envious towards that, neither one of them would have been able to enjoy God's gift. Those who love the glory of God rejoice in its display, however or in whomever it may be found. And this leads to flourishing and encouragement in the local church. So don't be jealous if you see others succeeding or being exceedingly fruitful. Rejoice in God's grace in their life. Be thankful that you have the privilege to witness God's gracious hand at work. 
encourage one another, as surely Mary and Elizabeth were mutually encouraged by their circumstances. When no one else could have understood or even believed them, they were there for one another. And we can have that here, too. The local church should be a place where we can confide in one another, where we can share burdens, doubts, and fears, and we can be built up by the word of God together. So humility rejoices in others' greater blessings. And finally, hidden, hidden in seed form, if you will, the humility of Christ. It's important that we focus our attention on Christ in this text. After all, he's the reason for the season. <laughs> That's what Hallmark says. Today marks the beginning of Advent on the historic Christian calendar. And honestly, us Baptists don't know what to do with the Christian calendar. So we just pick and choose what we want. And hey, I like it. I don't even know what to do with it. But today marks the first day of Advent. So what's the point of Advent? Advent is a season of waiting. That's why we Americans don't pay it much attention. We just focus on Christmas and we skip that waiting stuff and go straight to the presents. And just yesterday, a, a box from Amazon uh, was delivered to our house. And uh, Kaylin made the mistake of telling the boys it was Christmas presents. And so you know how the rest of this story goes. But I had the opportunity to explain to Haddon after his meltdown uh, that it's hard to wait. It's hard to wait. And Advent teaches us how to wait on the Lord. Just like he would have to wait 24 days to open these presents, God's people had to wait centuries for the coming of Jesus. Prophets would arrive like a UPS man, and God's people would be like, is this the time? Is it now? Is he the one? Is he the one who by the power of God will restore the kingdom of God to earth? Just to be like, nope, not this time. It's just another foretaste. But one day, it'll be him. The son of God will visit us in power. So all the world, and particularly God's covenant people, were watching, waiting eagerly on the power of God to be revealed. Then quietly, an angel visits an obscure virgin and tells her she will conceive and give birth to the Son of God. And that's it. God's eternal plan of redemption is revealed. The power of God, the power of God that everyone has been waiting on, will be veiled in weakness. God will take on the form of a servant. And that's Christmas. The beauty of celebrating Christmas is that year after year, we get to wrap our heads around the wonder of the incarnation of the Son of God. And some of the deepest theology in our hymns comes out around Christmas time. We sing things like, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. You see it, Charles Wesley saw it, veiled in flesh. So hidden in human form, we see the Godhead, the incarnate deity. So we don't simply celebrate the birth of Christ 
as if it were just the birth of a very important person like George Washington or even the most important person. It's not just his birthday. No, we're orienting our lives around the truth that the eternal God took on flesh in a human nature just like ours, but without sin. And the glory of this is incalculable. Charles Spurgeon paints the picture beautifully for us, as he always did. And now wonder, ye angels, the infinite has become an infant. He upon whose shoulders the universe doth hang, hangs now at his mother's breast. He who created all things and bears up the pillars of creation hath now become so weak that he must be carried by a woman. It's crazy, isn't it? It's a a cool crazy. (laughs) should move us to worship. Elizabeth was aware of this mystery. So look in the text. It says, notice that she calls Mary the mother of my Lord. Mary is the, the mother of my Lord. And there's been a lot of debate throughout church history as if we can call Mary the mother of God, the Theotokos. Um, and we can talk about that over coffee some other day. But here we have Elizabeth's great confession of the hypostatic union. That Jesus was truly God and truly man, even from the womb. When we speak of Jesus humbling himself in the incarnation, don't think of it as Jesus ceasing to be God. So this is very important. Don't think of the humility of Jesus in the incarnation as him ceasing to be God and becoming something less glorious. He was still as much God as he had been from all eternity. What took place in the incarnation is that the logos or the word The second person of the Trinity assumed a human nature so that he fully retains the attributes of each nature without confusion, change, division, or separation. He's not half God and half man, like a demigod. He's not two persons somehow in one body. He is the one person, Jesus Christ, who possesses both a human nature and a divine nature. And because both the divine and human natures are joined together in the one person, Elizabeth can rightly say that Mary is the mother of the Lord, even though God has no mother. And so that's where the debate goes, and I feel myself getting there. (laughs) If If God is uncreated, how can he have a mother? So how can we say Mary is the mother of God? But when we consider the hypostatic union... The man who was God had a mother. And so Mary is the mother of our Lord. It's not about Mary. It's about who Jesus is. That's what the title's about. We can still have coffee, though. So what I want you to see is that behind this deep theological concept that we, some of us don't want to think about, known as the hypostatic union, Behind this deep theological concept is the extremely personal revelation of the humility of Christ. That he didn't consider himself too good to identify with his creation in order to redeem it. Like Christ could have cracked the skies, right? In omnipotent pomp and ceremony. He could have descended into the very palace of the emperor with royal honor. He could have made it very obvious that he was God. Yet, in order to glorify his grace and to identify with his suffering bride, 
he took on her weakness. And he didn't even come as a fully mature adult. He came as what we'd call today a fetus, the lowest level of humanity, so that no one could be disqualified from his mediation. In other words, so that he could identify with humanity at every level, in every state, so there's nowhere that you're at in life that Jesus doesn't identify with you. The independent God who gives life to all became dependent upon his own creature for his life, according to this new human nature. So if you feel small and helpless, Jesus has been there. And Jesus wants to meet you there right now. For when you are weak, then you're strong. This humility of Christ should be a model for us as a church. It's what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2, 3 through 11. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So church, do you want to experience the power of God? Do you want to know something of the weight of the glory of God? Do you want to make a difference for Christ in this generation? Do you? Well, we've got to get low. We've got to embrace weakness and walk in humility if we're ever going to taste the power of God among us. Do you wonder why we don't see revival in our land? We're far too proud. The most dangerous place a church can be is when a church is doing well apart from the power of God. When we're clicking like a well-oiled machine and we don't even need the Spirit of God to show up. Let us never be there. Let us have the mind of Christ. Let us know the will of God. God has shown us, he has told us where he has placed his power. The power of God isn't in political parties. The power of God isn't in the media. The power of God is in the incarnate deity, in the God-man who weeps, who catches a cold, who is worn out after a hard day's work, who is ridiculed, slandered, falsely accused, and nailed to a tree. 
The power of God is in the author of life lying silently in a grave. This doesn't make any sense to the unbelieving world. In fact, the Bible tells us that the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1.18. And have you considered the fact that the first three witnesses to Christ are voiceless? Look at the text. Again, God could have chosen anyone to testify to Jesus as Lord. And he chose two women. No one would believe them. One, they're women. And in the, first time, in the first century in this time, women's testimonies were not considered credible. And two, just think about it. So you're a virgin and you're pregnant with God's son. Yeah, all right. Like it's hard to believe. The third witness was a baby in his mother's womb. He couldn't even speak, but he testified through worship as he leaped for joy in his mother's womb. So may we be encouraged by this, by the foolishness of gospel witness. You don't have to be believable. You don't have to be eloquent or wise. You just have to be faithful. We're all called to bear witness to the Lordship of Christ. And we are to do so humbly, not concerned about our own reputation or our own glory. I think sometimes we feel like we need to make Jesus look better. So we veil our pride with strategy. We, we hire celebrities to come talk about Jesus. We think if only this influential person would be converted then we would see a mass revival. All the while, all it is is that we don't want to look foolish. And right now, God is saying to us, my power in this age is always veiled in weakness. If we're not okay with weakness and being thought a fool, then we are not okay with Christ and the humility he has shown us. So bear witness to Christ with humble boldness. Now as we close, remember this. In all of this, in all of this, God has not left us without help. He sent his spirit to empower us. We get to see him prove his power to save each, new time, each time we see a new person baptized. Like, if we think that message is hard to believe, the waters of baptism prove it, that God is powerful and he saves. He has surrounded us with brothers and sisters who love us and help us through our darkest days. Hear this. God has never failed you, and he never will. His promises are sure. And as Elizabeth said, and blessed are those who believe that there will be a fulfillment of what is spoken to them from the Lord. May God give us grace to believe his word today. Let's pray. Lord, you are good. 
your steadfast love endures forever. And Lord, sometimes forever seems long in our sin. We thank you that you help us, that you give us support in our weakness, that you have not left us alone. Would you give us grace to walk humbly before you and thus glorify Christ as the only one powerful to save? Would you embolden your people, Lord, to speak the gospel, to cling to it with our lives? you allow us the privilege of seeing Christ glorified in this generation. We pray this in his name. Amen.